before Mark, there was a sense of ego in where I was coming from in terms of look at this beauty I have made. It was a it it was technical prowess being showed off from a point of technological optimism. I think where throw tech at a problem and hopefully it'll solve itself. And I think working with Mark led to me developing a more critical thought process and a more reflective thought process and that helps me recontextualize myself even before I start off on a project now like hello friend and welcome back to another episode of do I need school to be the podcast in which me Alex is going to sit down with creatives and ask them about their journey into the creative field focusing on their education the teachers who shaped them the books who shaped them the movies in general what their journey was like if you're somebody who is thinking about entering the creative field I hope this show will be a resource to you and show you that we all have different paths and they are all valid so let's go I have a great guest for you this week you actually already know his voice because he is actually the one who interviewed me on episode one of this podcast and he's also the voice you always hear at the beginning in contrast to mine saying the name of the podcast he's my friend armid he's a really cool dude the youngest person i've interviewed on this podcast so far a hilarious person a true visionary and somebody i love arguing with like seriously i had to cut out like 30 minutes of ranting on hr sites to get this episode to be the the proper length so i really hope you enjoy this conversation with armid and don't worry he will say his last name i just sadly cannot pronounce it but it's fine he cannot pronounce mine either so we're squared anyways let's go to the interview with armid this is gonna be such a weird episode yeah i know (laughs) i feel like we need a lawyer here no, we're, we're fine. It's all been recorded. We can like contest later. Mm, but what, I don't trust your I'm, editing. <laughs> it's because the idea for this podcast was born a year and a half ago. <gasps> Maybe? I'm guessing. I I mean, we were planning on doing a podcast for approximately almost two years at this point, honestly. Yes, almost two years. Yeah, almost two years. But the idea for this specific podcast was a year Around and a half year, ago. Yeah. Because we were six months thinking we should do something, but we don't know what. This episode is going to be super ranty, but we'll get some content out of it, I promise. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Otherwise, it'll just be like three hours of us ranting about anything. Oh, shit. Oh, I shouldn't curse. Okay, I'll, again, <laughs> post. Um... But yeah, so the idea of this podcast was originally an idea that Armin and I had, and then it mutated to me doing it on my own. But here I am in service, giving respect. I'm here to check up on my baby. The person that helped me in this journey that was part like yeah baby daddy is the baby daddy of this podcast even though he's uh, baby daddy is the weirdest term you're gonna come up with for that. (laughs) I don't know what to call it. But anyways, so here we are with Armid, and please say your last name because I cannot pronounce it for the life of me. Bhattacharya or Bhattacharji. I have two suffixes. Yes, that's the word. Two suffixes to my last name. Jesus Christ. So tell the audience who you are and what you're currently working on. Right. What am I? Good question. I have no idea. Uh, (laughs) Oh my uh, God. So I'm a designer and developer. So basically, I just make things without really caring too much about the specific discipline they fall under. But a lot of my work uh, tends to revolve around digital tools and uh, interaction design. So clearly, I do have some kind of a domain. 
Um, what is the second question? The second question is, how did you get here? How did I? No, wait. The first question had two parts, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the <laughs> second part was, what are you currently working on? Oh, yes. Um, so I just finished, finished my internship, as you know. Uh, and so did you, I think. Yes. Hey, internship bros. Um, and now I'm working on a freelance project, which is this interactive installation. And we are pitching it to this art fund next week for the second stage of funding, which is uh, super fun. Uh, I've actually been working on this thing for, I think, the past three or four months. And I swear this thing kept me alive during the internship. Like this was like my passion project on the side while everything was going on with my internship. So yes, I'm glad to see it finally come to life. So I think your story is very interesting because so we met in the academy, in the Willem de Koenig Academy. And unlike a lot of us, you came with a shitload of experience before. We came, you came here with a lot more experience than the rest of us did. Like the rest of us came here fe feeling like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to experiment with. But you had already been in hackathons. You had been in, you had a lot of knowledge that the rest of us didn't have. Technical knowledge. I about think the technical knowledge-wise, yeah, I can agree. Yeah. And how did you get into that? So how did you, because we're in the Netherlands. And let's go back to like when you started learning. Hmm. Like how did you get here to now asking for funding for a project? Like how was the journey there? Oh, that's a very long journey. I'll compress the Yeah, just give us like more. one minute on each part. So um, how I started off is, so I used to draw a bunch in school as like 99% of the people here. Of course. That's how every designer starts. Um, around fifth grade, I was like, yo, it would be kind of cool if I could turn these drawings into 3D. And that's when I learned my first design software, which is Blender. Because Aww. I was looking up, yeah. saying, yo, how can I make 3D things? And then I learned Blender. And... Um, we have this computer club in our school. Uh, it's called Code Warriors. It's a very edgy, fun name. Um, the logo is in Jokerman, by the way. And it's still in Jokerman to this day. And I love it so much for that. Um, but basically, uh, we went to a lot of hackathons where the hackathon competitions were divided up by the discipline. So there was a 3D modeling competition, a graphic design competition, a motion graphics competition, etc. Also for programming and stuff. Um, so they took me on uh, because there weren't that many people doing 3D modeling. So they just needed everyone they could find. So me in seventh grade, uh, it took me a couple of years to get good at it. Um, so me in seventh grade started uh, going to these hackathons. And back then I wasn't winning that much. But what was more important was that the people I was exposing myself to in these hackathons. Because these were people who had more knowledge than me in other disciplines as well. But the other disciplines were sort of parallel to parallelly related to 3d modeling so for instance uh, game development so game development uses 3d modeling but 3d modeling is a very small part of game development in fact i think game development is a very nice example because it sort of combines every discipline you can think of there's programming there's graphic design there's motion graphics um pretty much everything so that's the second thing i tried my hand and i was i was i was gonna try game development so uh, seventh grade me uh, downloaded Unity and I was like, yo, I'm going to check this out. Um, that's how I first uh, familiarized myself with programming, by the way, because you had to learn C sharp to uh, write scripts in Unity. Um, and yeah, like as the years progressed, as ninth grade, 10th grade came on, I got into graphic design, motion graphics. And in 11th and 12th grade specifically, I think uh, I became more aware of the entire field of 
interaction and UX design slash product design. Uh, so that's when I started working in a way that was more um, aware of the business aspects of products and the technical aspects of products. I don't like the word product, by the way. I think I like the word tool more, but that's a very recent realization. Okay, maybe I'll touch on that later. Cut yes. this part out. Yes. Uh, I will keep it. I will keep it. <laughs> I will just, keep all of this. You will just delete all of your fumbles and just keep all of mine. <laughs> Um, Why are you revealing my secrets that way? I would, I will, I'm going to no, expose you I, here. I, I think it's very interesting because you are talking about going from a more art, almost artistic approach and very focused to think, taking a more holistic approach, which is something that many times in art education we're deterred from. It's like, don't think about the commercial part, stay in the creative part, in the innovation part. So it's very interesting that through getting to know these people and being exposed to this environment, you're getting to that. And so you are taking that approach, a more holistic approach. I hated that word. I've gone to love. I've grown to love it for some reason. I think it just sounds smart when you say it. Like I think we should do this. You can use the, it in any context. The, and the I thing think is that holistic to me used to sound like hippie, almost like witchcraft. Nah. For some reason, a holistic approach was always more um, from the left. More let's use herbs. Let's 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 cure. Let let's. There's a broken leg. A holistic approach to cure it is just to throw throw holy water on it. That's I disagree her holistic so strongly. I feel like anyone saying holistic, they, I automatically imagine them on this TED talk stage holding a mic, addressing an entire audience. But because now I've learned, I've educated myself, and now I know that holistic means looking at the thing as a whole. Hmm. It's not holistic as holistic hippie witchcraft. It's more holistic as a whole. And I'm like, oh, you can always learn new things. I cannot understand the mental association, association between holistic and hippie. I don't know. Just le let me have my associations. Yeah, fine, okay. man. <laughs> okay, you so, um, and how did you, yeah, from all of this, how did you get to the Netherlands? Hmm. Um, so, kind of actually continuing on the thing you were saying about this difference where I went from a more artistic approach yeah. to a more holistic approach, whereas it's the other way around often in art school. Um, well, not the other way around, I would say, but maybe they do tend to push you towards a more creative, innovative direction, uh, which is actually nice. My journey goes kind of like a sine wave in the sense that I started from a more artistic approach. Then towards the end of high school, uh, I started looking at things from a more business and technical perspective as well. Like that was an addition to my uh, creative approach. So coming from uh, high school to art school, um, I entered art school with a, a lot of these um, preconceived notions around how design should be done. Like I was like, yes, you should consider the business aspect very closely and you should consider the technical aspect and etc etc um but i think an interesting evolution that happened through high school is that i expanded my definitions of exactly what the right way is because earlier i was like um there was there was sort of a narrow-mindedness around what makes a certain thing good from a business perspective or good from a technical perspective and i think not only did I expand my definitions of what it's like to do creative work or what it's uh, what it means for something to be innovative, but also expanded my definitions of what it is to be a good business. Um, why is something technically well made? I, I feel like I'm using business and technically like in a ping pong way. No, it's um, fine. Yeah, it's okay. It's coming through. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was that was an interesting evolution, and I think in the in the first year of Willem de Kooning. 
I think that's when I actually started um, building my technical skills in regards to things outside of the design field, so things like programming. Um, like I did some game development back in seventh grade, but that was a very base level familiarity with very basic programming concepts. And I think that's when I started delving more into straight up web development or straight up programming. Um, and slowly, I think I started building those skills and by the middle of the second year, uh, I gained a good level of confidence in using these kind of tools, uh, even though I'm still learning. Like um, I'm, I'm, I think, end of my first year was probably when I was on the peak of that confidence versus skill um, graph that you keep seeing. And then, yeah, I humbled myself a little more. Like, <laughs> oh, okay, you're not like a god around here either, it's man. It's like, like chill. It's like calm relax. Down. <laughs> um, no, but the cool thing, I, yeah. you have done so many cool projects. I remember especially, and I didn't have the heart to tell you this. Um, remember, <laughs> I think it was first year you did the keyboard for blind people? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that already existed. Yeah, I know. Yeah. In fact, there was a much easier you, you so for that as well. You were so excited about like, the fact that you came up with it, and I was thinking the entire time, that already exists. But the fact that you came up with it and the technology and how and the gestures that you can use, it, it served a purpose. It's, I think that's why I love the, the, the project so much because it wasn't just blind innovation. I'm going to innovate for the sake of innovating. It was thinking about a user group that was completely different from you. And that's something that we don't see enough in the design world. I think we design websites thinking of people like you and me who can see more or less perfectly hourglasses. You also need visual yep. aids. Um, but then there's this whole segment of people who don't have that. And we are not designing for them. We're not being taught how to design for them. But then you came up with this thing that was completely different. And that's why I liked it so much. I think I almost dislike that project now. Why? <laughs> because... Um... I, I disagree uh, with that not being innovation for the sake of innovation because I think, like you said, um, I knew that those kinds of keyboards existed and in fact, uh, there's an easier version of it with your phone as well. <laughs> uh, like you can use a phone as a braille keyboard. Mm -hmm. um, basically, I did not... I, 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 I wanted to design for the user group of the visually impaired. Mm -hmm. But I did not familiarize myself with the struggles of the user group or the user group themselves enough before approaching the problem. So I approached yeah. it from a more technical designer perspective. And in this case, it wasn't that harmful because it was a school project and people it aren't using be, it, the product. I think it can be forgiven because it was a school project. Exactly. I'm guessing that if it had been a real life project, we would have done testing, like you know, the user testing, seeing what they think, run interviews and stuff like that. But I think it that's can also, be forgiven. You were a student. That's also very um, important, I think, for every school project because ultimately a lot of the habits that you build up in school do also... Of course. Uh, flow into your because you're essentially emulating what how you would actually approach a project even if you're doing it for the sake of like an assignment or something mm -hmm. um so now i think i would start off from a more solid research-based beginning foundation and then build upon that with the technical innovations and whatever i was doing at the time um and i think even now like the problem is you see this methodology being applied to real life products where people are designing products for target users without familiarizing themselves with the target group and it does reflect in how that product just does not cater to a certain group the way yeah. it was intended yeah and you only found out you only find out so much later um i 
uh, where do you think that comes from? Let's rant a little bit. Where do you think that comes from? I think it comes from the idea that you need that the need to make something and be so focused on the fact that you're making it and not thinking of who you're making it for. I think it's because you want that badge of honor of saying like you made a thing. Why do you think this is that we that the design goes before the the research? I think with the advent of the culture around UX, I think that problem is being slightly tackled in some way where people are a little more conscious that okay maybe we should do a lot of these interviews and user tests and preliminary research before just diving straight into the design aspect of it but outside of that field and also often like inside that field to be honest i think that need to create and it's almost i think an ego boost to oh, yeah like look at this thing which will save this demographic of people and enhance their lives so i i think uh, uh, there's a bit of that savior complex that comes into creating something for a demographic almost too hastily and i think there are these two worlds which don't talk to each other enough which is the world of critical reflection and critical usage of technology for instance and practical implementation and practical usage because a lot of times i see that and especially if you look at a uh, tech culture on twitter for example uh even the twitter is obviously very um, there's a bit of selection bias going on in what kind of tech culture you get exposed to they have their own they have their own issues now hmm. there's a sort of optimism and faith put in technology and that is often harmful and almost disrespectful to the problem which it is trying to solve amen because you can't just slap an app on top of any problem and call it a day i think that critical reflection and an analysis of the user group you're targeting or the people who might be using the thing that you create or who might be even exposed to the thing you create because ultimately your product isn't just being seen by the people who use it it's also in a con- in context it's around other people as well and not analyzing okay that was a very poorly worded no i mean something. it it no it's great and i think i i feel seen right now i feel related to i feel like somebody understands why am i so pissed off when people say that bitcoin and blockchain will save the world it's very upsetting to me especially like i spend a lot of time in clubhouse that's one of the reasons that i started this podcast because clubhouse gave me confidence one of my favorite social media apps if not the favorite mm. um but you always find those groups of people saying like yeah we're going to fix the world uh from poverty hunger and human rights violations through bitcoin and blockchain And like you said, I also feel like that's disrespectful to the pro- to the problem because like I've heard it here in in this academy from people not from the academy itself from students at the academy the academy cannot cannot be held responsible <laughs> for those statements. Uh saying things like we why are we focusing on how to design print if in 10 years books will no longer exist. Because this is overly optimistic attitude towards technology. thinking that technology will overtake us and my answer to that is always it might not seem real to you 
to that person, not to you. I know that it's real for you because you're a smart person <laughs> and involved in the world. But for some people, it's not real the fact that there are places in this world where there is no electricity, there is no internet, there is no access to constant water. And they say, yeah, but those are not, and they cannot believe it. And I tell them, yeah, do you know what? In the town where my mom was born, which is the town where my family still lives in Honduras, they don't get constant electricity. So to them, you telling them that Bitcoin and blockchain is going to solve their lives, how if it's not accessible to them? So I totally agree that it's this over-optimism, this over-reliance in technology, mm. not thinking that technology is not accessible to, any, to everybody. And even if you say, even if you say that one percent of the world doesn't have access to technology, it is still a lot of people mm. that you are. And it's like you said, it's disrespectful to the problem. And I, I love that. I love how you put it into words. But now we're here, and I want to ask you, with all these great ideas that you have, and I love the idea that you're this critic, this critical view towards technology. What brought you there? Like, did you have any teachers or experiences or books or movies or whatever that put you in this path that served as teachers for you? I think um, towards the end of my high school, I was at that point where I had this optimistic view towards technology. And that also helped facilitate a lot of these narrow-minded ideas that I had about how design should be done, how technology should be used, et cetera, et cetera. And I think in art school, in my first year, especially like when I just got here, it was kind of a cultural shock because, well, less of a cultural shock, more of a, almost a disciplinary shock where the people who were, the people I encountered at this academy had a very different idea of how design should be approached and how things should be done. And a lot of the times the immediate contrast, because it's very easy to notice black and white contrast, right? The opposite end of the spectrum was just go ham and just make something, make 50 iterations and see if something sticks. And honestly, that is a very legit methodology of working as well. Like it's a, it's super useful in certain contexts. And I think that first semester, uh, do you remember the semester in which uh, we were given two mediums? Yes, and then it was we had horrible. to make 15 uh, pieces of a week. artwork or whatever you would call it, posters, I think. A week, yeah. And uh, I really struggled with that because... Um, what format did you get? Because I have mentioned that assignment before in the podcast. Uh, what, what format did you get? I got a silk screen and Rezo. Yeah, but what sizes? Oh, um, A5, I think, or A6. I got lucky. Like, A5, Yeah, we A6, got lucky. So lucky. Then we, we both got lucky because mm. uh, in a previous interview, and that's a good thing because that tells me that you have to go after Naomi. Mm. We were talking about the in education, how sometimes we, teachers ignore the socioeconomical aspect of each student. Mm. So we we talked about how some people got a zero, oh, which man. is a gigantic freaking format. And it wasn't the same. The expenses that you and I had in that assignment were not the same as the expenses that I think was Jordi. Jordi had a zero hmm. immediately. And this glib idea when the teacher said, oh, you can you money shouldn't be an issue or you should figure it out. It's like you have to give them guidance on how to figure it out. And how are you willing to give us guidance on the creative part, but you're not giving us guidance on the practical part of actually making these things? Yeah, that is very true. And it's also a time investment. Like we all know like A0 prints take forever compared to A6 prints where you could print like three A4s and suddenly you have like, what is it? How many, how many A5s can you fit in an A4? Two. Two, yeah. Yeah. So you have so four six. A6. Yeah. yeah. Six. 
Hey friend, it's Alex just interrupting this conversation to remind you that in order to have the optimal experience and enjoy all the links in the show notes, you can subscribe to the show on any platform you're using to listen to this podcast. And yeah, it supports the show. It will improve the algorithm for you. So it would show you more shows like this one that you will potentially like. And if you wish to support the show, you can follow us on social media. All the links are in the show notes as well as a link to buy me a coffee, which yeah, will help pay for the hosting. And I also love coffee. Thank you for joining me on this episode and letting me be in your ears. And now we'll go back to my conversation with Armit. So that that clash, that first clash with culture and the teachers that you were involved with. I think um, just coming back to that uh, point of economics for a second, I think it even plays a huge part in the disciplines we choose. Because I remember one of the reasons that I am so attracted to digital design um, is because it's a very it's a very non-committal medium almost, where you don't have to go out and get a printer or hook yourself up with a print shop you don't have to pay for these swaths of paper like as long as for example if you want to get started in web design technically you could get by with like just a laptop or something yeah even though like obviously being familiarized with physical mediums helps in the process but if you're just looking at the bare minimum of okay what do i need to create a book versus what do i need to create a website these are completely different in terms of the tools that they call for but expecting everyone who has to create an A0 poster to go with the digital medium also puts them in a narrow, um, also gives them a very narrow path for Mm -hmm. how they can achieve final results without spending like 200 euros on A0 prints. Exactly. Or take it out A0 prints, like imagine somebody who got A0 in a Riso printer. How many, <laughs> how many sheets do you have to print? How many masters do you have to make? Each master costs money. Yeah. Like, it, it is an aspect. I think, I think that's why I appreciate the interaction station in the school. Because if you want to go with dig- digital mediums, for example, um, there are things which can get expensive. For example, uh, uh, like, I've worked with VR headsets before, and I would never go out and buy a VR headset by myself, at least, like, currently but it's so easy to like borrow one of these headsets that the school does give out things which are useful okay wait that's a no, dumbass I mean, sentence no i i agree and exactly it's like talking about like making these podcasts like hmm. we're recording right now on the zoom h6 the zoom h6 is 300 bucks yeah i didn't buy it i rented it i got it for free it's a it's a path like the microphones that we're using only one of them actually bought yeah that which is my personal microphone sammy the microphone oh. And then mine um, is still called Ramesh, by the way. <laughs> Jesus, but yeah, and I love that you brought up the uh, interaction station because you're actually a teacher, well, a pal, a mm, student, a student assistant, a student yeah. assistant. But you're teaching people in the interaction station. Yeah, what's that like? Like, do do you think that you got a different insight into your material into your work because you have to teach it to somebody else? For sure, I think. I think. I have very limited experience in teaching, like consciously teaching people. And most of that, most of that experience comes from working at the interaction station. And it's not until you try to teach a concept to people who are unfamiliar with a certain discipline until you realize how much you picked up without consciously thinking about it. 
because for example if i'm explaining a code snippet to uh, someone i will glance through what i think are the important aspects of uh, how that snippet was written but then the person will be like oh why did you use curly brackets instead of round brackets or and in my mind it's always like yeah because that's just how it is but yeah when someone asks it's like this is how god wanted it i mean how do you explain why syntaxes are rigid and why you can't move them around so easily <laughs> so i think it it helps make your mindset more flexible in terms of how you're willing to approach your own discipline when you explain it to others and in fact uh, there's a very good concept um, well concept there's a very good term in uh, a lot of programming circles it's called talking to the rubber duck which comes from this one dude who used to keep a rubber duck next to his desk or something and talk to it to explain a certain problem to it whenever he was having trouble and the entire reason he would do this is because explaining the problem to someone else helped him understand the problem better in his mind yeah and i think a lot of that happens with me as well when i'm teaching someone at the interaction station because there are these things that I think I understand but I actually don't completely understand. There's almost like a mental black box and explaining something to someone feels like you're intentionally ripping that black box open to figure out okay, exactly why do I think the way I do? Where do my opinions come from? Because until you are challenged by someone else on those opinions, you can be perfectly com- comfortable just having the biases you have, having the subjectivity you have. Yes. So I think I am not very well versed as a teacher. I don't think I should give any advice on how to teach people or anything like that, but as a tool for learning, I think teaching is amazing. That's great and that links perfectly to the interview I had with Ginger, which she says that that's actually a tool that Ginger uses in asking students to explain things to each other that we think that when they break us up into groups it's just to piss us off. It's just to annoy us because we have to work in teams. but it is it's just the fact that when a student has to explain something to another student they have to review it in their head and then they realize oh wait i don't understand this correctly because i cannot explain it so i have to like go over it and figure out how it is and then i can explain it to somebody else hmm. or explain it in different words that the other person will understand like i'm guessing that if you were to explain a line of code to somebody who's well versed in code you'll use a different vocabulary that you'll use with little old me who It's very nice. You understand code, man. I, I understand through. I understand code to the sense that I know what is not possible. I think that's actually a very important aspect. So, um where do you see the future of creative education going? I think um, this is basically coming from nowhere, but <laughs> Jesus. I this is this is an aspiration. I hope it goes towards flexibility. and i think we do see that pattern in some places where there are just so many aspects of life in general which head towards which tend towards flexibility once we have um what's the what's the word for abundance yes once we have an abundance of options and oh, technologies yeah. and choices if you are into completely physical education i think there are plenty of benefits to physical education and physical based learning which you should be able to reap but on the other hand there are also a lot of benefits to digital uh, education same with hybrid obviously it's best of both worlds or worst of both worlds i don't know that depends on your choice yeah exactly um, so yeah i think i think this format of 
schools deciding this rigid structure of this is how much physical versus digital uh, of a curriculum we will have and then imposing it upon students. I believe as an aspiration that should be done away with. I think student, students should be able to choose how, how they would like to approach their own choices in terms of digital versus physical. But then there is another aspect of it, which is a little bit, it's away from the digital, uh, digital physical spectrum. Um, and that's about liberty in what you want to learn. Because I could have done, I could have gone to a design school in India as well, for instance. Um, and another option on my map was the US because you have some of the best design schools over there as well. Well, best in some top 10 list on some random website. Um, but I think there are really different design cultures in a lot of these schools. For instance, I know that a lot of my peers who go to design schools in India uh, have a more rigid expectation of them for how they should approach a certain project or what they should deliver towards the end of it. Um, I think Willem de Kooning is on the complete other end of the spectrum where there are, I, I'm, I basically don't work as a graphic designer. Like I, I feel like an imposter in the class because a lot of my work does end up being interaction design, which involves graphic design to some extent, but for the most part, I'm presenting it as a research tool and okay, not a research tool, but a tool that I've created and often focusing on the research aspects of it rather than perhaps the visual aspects of it. But I just wrap it in this container of technically it's graphic design and schools are like, the school is like, well, can't say no to that. So I think I, I, I really love the flexibility of that over here because honestly, I feel like a lot of what I reap from Willem de Kooning is the uh, tools and teachers and people rather than the curriculum itself. Um, but then you look at um, colleges in the US, for example, and a lot of this is anecdotal because I've never been, I've never attended a design school in, the, in India or the US. But, oh, by the way, uh, entrance exam, there is a really popular design school, well, the most popular design school in India, it's called NID. Uh, and for some reason, the entrance exam has a multiple choice questionnaire about general knowledge. Uh, yeah, it didn't make sense to me either. <laughs> Jesus um, Christ. Anyway, uh, so the US seems like a nice middle ground to me where there is a little more structure in, okay, if you're doing graphic design, you are going to learn, for example, the essence of typography or layout, etc., which is not taught to us that formally or in like a, such a structured manner in Willem de Kooning. I do think there's a culture here of breaking the rules before you know the rules. Um, which I think that's why self-initiative is really important in a place like this, especially because you have to put your own effort and your own motivation into learning the rules themselves behind typography, for instance, or behind UX design. Um, and this, and then that gives you the tool set you need to learn why you need to break the rules. And that's the very, uh, cliche way of saying it, but still holds true in my opinion. Um, in the US, I think there's a more structured way of teaching you the rules first and then expecting you to uh, see where the edges of the bo box are and seeing if you can poke your finger out of it. 
Um, so I think there's this really interesting spectrum between India, US, and the Netherlands in terms of how authoritative an art school can be. And I think there should be some degree of liberty in choosing how authoritative you want your curriculum to be as well, because I think it's a huge privilege for me to come out of India into the Netherlands to be able to study here, obviously. Um, not everyone has that privilege. I think that globalization of a culture in which you should be able to choose how digital or how physical uh, you want your education to be, and also on this more two-dimensional spectrum, how authoritarian or how libertarian you want your syllabi to be. I think having flexibility in that two-dimensional map would be really important. I don't have any proposals about how we could get there, but I really wish there could be some thought into how we could achieve this kind of flexibility. And it, maybe we won't get to a place where you can literally just, okay, I want it to be 70% authoritarian and 30% digital. But having a broader, having maybe more institutions um, which offer these different ratios spread out in a more globalized uh, manner instead of being concentrated in one particular geographical area. Or maybe that's where the physical versus digital argument plays in, where you don't have to be in the Netherlands to study in a Dutch art institution. Um, so yeah, that's it's just a ramble of thoughts and wishes and hopes and aspirations. But they are very beautiful and yeah, I think it's, it's if it's just a wish, I think it's a good wish to have to say or, and I think it can impact people in many ways like neurodiverse people maybe they can say like hey would it be possible that I take 80% of my classes online because it's easier for me to focus when I'm alone and just 10% which is like the feedback sessions for example be actually physically there hmm. or somebody who has a physical disability or somebody who only wants to be present like physically present in class because they need that support or because just enjoy the human interaction so allowing that flexibility would allow more people to access education and to take the best and to take the most out of it yep. so yeah i think that's very beautiful it imagine could. if there was like more collaboration between art institutes imagine if I someone studying in stuff someone studying in india could follow a dutch art curriculum while using the tools available in india itself so they don't have to go to the netherlands they could use the tools available to the art institute which is five kilometers from them next step imagine if so if you could collaborate with somebody who is in latin america in an engineering school if we could have Sick. collaborations like are more transdisciplinary so we don't have only projects who are artistic we have projects who are artistic and scientific i know so many projects both in engineering schools and in design schools which would uh, benefit so much literally i think last week a friend of mine who's studying software engineering was like yo can you help me out with this project because uh, she needed a UX and visual design aid for some product she's making. And we constantly come across situations in Willem de Kooning where if there was someone who was more proficient in software engineering, the possibilities of what could be done in terms of the scope of the projects, in terms of even how you think about the projects in general, that would expand so much. I mean, imagine if you had had, when you were making the project for the blind, if you had had access to, some, to an ophthalmologist or a person who, or a, a visual therapist. 
that person that could have told you like, hey, this could work in this way and other ways. Um, in my social innovation course, we call it a social partner, which is a person that is an expert in that topic and they can give you that feedback. Hmm. And I think that in the realm of design is super necessary and can enrich your product and it can reach your products, your projects or your tools or whatever you want to call them services in a great way. So thank you so much for being with me here today, Armid. I think we had a very ranty or very interesting <laughs> episode. <laughs> and so is there anything you would like to promote right now? A book, a movie, it can be your work, it can be a website that you liked, it can be a book that you read or a movie that you watched that you just want to tell the audience about because you think it will help them in their creative journey. Uh, you can also share your own Instagram, <laughs> that's also fine. No, I'm kidding, that's, I'm not going to be that lame, man. Um, man, there's just too much. Or maybe a designer, that, uh, a designer that you like that you think is... Molly Mienke, dude. I want to get in touch with her and I've been meaning to hit her up for so long because she has the same... Um, thing where she tries to balance critical technology with practical implementation and i'm like yo but that's what i want to do <laughs> okay okay so molly mienke yeah okay i'm gonna look her up and i'm gonna add her instagram right with your website probably in the show notes i don't know what i'm gonna put in the show notes but i will put them two together and maybe you can like dm her and or i can say like hey you were mentioned on this podcast do you want to give a comment on it <gasps> and maybe that's how you become friends <gasps> by the way molly if you're listening to this i'm sorry if i fucked up your last name <laughs> Jesus I don't Christ. know how it's supposed to be pronounced <laughs> well thank you so much Armin it was great having you alright thank you bye bye Jesus Christ I mean uh, the amount of ranting that I had to take out of this episode is ridiculous but that's just how things go when Armin and I get together to talk about whatever um, it was an honor to have him. I think it was a great show full of super valuable insights. And if you want to follow Armid and all his social medias or check out his work, you'll find links to that in the show notes. And as we come to the end of the show, I want to thank you for joining me on another episode and giving me your time. I hope you're enjoying these conversations and please subscribe to the show and give us a review or give us any feedback. You can reach out to us on social media as well. All the links are in the show notes to let us know if you have questions you would like to ask creatives what would you would like to learn if you have somebody to recommend please let us know i am here to make something great for you that said again thank you and hope to be again in your ears next week keep learning and stay curious bye